This is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of The Quocast. And today we've got something quite special. An interview with the director of Hello Quo, that definitive status quo documentary, Alan G. Parker. I'll be talking to him in just a moment, but first, if you're a fan of Quo or you've had something to do with them over the last 50 plus years, then you are welcome to come on and talk status quo on the Quocast. You can email quocast at outlook.com. That's quocast at outlook.com. You can go onto our Twitter page and tweet us at castquo on there, or you can go to the Facebook page, which is just simply the Quocast, and come on to the podcast for 15, 20 minutes and talk status quo. I'm really excited now to introduce this interview that I recently conducted with author and director Alan G. Parker. The name will ring bells to many in the Quo community because he is the director of the 2012 documentary Hello Quo. And in this interview, we talk about many things, but I started off by asking him what was his first experience of status quo. My first personal experience of Quo, the school I went to in Blackburn, Lancashire, was called St. Wilfrid's. And right across from St. Wilfrid's main school, there was a shop that I'm sure anybody in Blackburn would know very well in the 70s. It was called Norman Taylor's. And it was a shop that sold shoes and denim and a bit of sports gear. At the time, we were pretty much glam rock kids. Me and my brother were into bands like Slade and Sweet. And we even had the Basie Rollers albums, Glitter Band, The Osmonds, all that kind of thing. And I remember coming out of school one day and seeing this huge poster in the window of Norman Taylor's. I mean, London Underground size, you know. End of the bus stops, one of those real big, what I call a freeze poster. And there was these four blokes, three stood up and one sat down, all wearing what looked like Levi or Wrangler Denim. And I, could, I just remember looking at it and thinking, they don't look like models, and yet they're, in, they're, they're on this poster advertising denim in this, what is technically Blackburn's biggest denim selling shop, right? And I looked and I looked and I thought, they can't be models, surely, because, you know, whenever you, certainly in those days, if you saw a model, they did look like they'd been, you know, beamed down from planet Mars. They were the most handsome men and women in the world. And I thought, these guys just do not look like models. And I remember about a week later, walking past Norman Taylor's with my dad, and this poster was still in the window. And I said, uh, I said, who was they, by the way? I said, I just presume they must be either my own, but that's status quo. Oh, okay. And of course, it was the advertising poster for uh, the, the, the denim deal they'd done on Blue For You. I should say, probably within that first six-month period, I got my... I used to go down into town with my dad and my brother quite a lot when we were younger on Saturdays, and dad was a big music fan. So he'd always buy himself an album and get me and our kid a couple of singles each. And if it was a birthday coming up or whatever, we'd get albums as well. Occasionally, we'd also go to the second down record exchange, which meant that your single money would spin as far as an album, you know, because in those days, I mean, you could pick a second down album up for about 40 or 50 pence, you know, there was no, no problem there. So I don't think it'd be too much further down the line that I got a copy of the Quo album because I just thought the cover looked amazing. I thought that whatever it is, that cloud, that mushroom cloud with the foreheads on, I thought it looked amazing. But again, not long after that, I would have got a copy of, um, of of Blue For You because of this poster. 
So that's really my um, my intro to Quo. That's a really good introduction, isn't it? Because those two albums in particular are as, as seen as part of Quo's golden age. Yeah, they, I mean, it's, it, it, the thing about it is with Quo, and it's, it is, I guess because of the movie, it's something a lot of people weren't listening to say, oh, you know, I thought differently or whatever it might be. They've, they've kind of always been there since then in my life. They're not, I'm, you know, they're aware of this factor. They're not my favourite band in the world. I don't, I'm not a Quo collector. I've got one or two nice rarities that I've picked up along the way, you know, at various record fairs or whatever, I've got the odd bootleg. The bands I collect on a, on a big level, probably in the same way that Quo fans collect Quo, are people like, you know, like the Beagles, Queen, Pink Floyd, Elton, and also my metal stuff, you know, Metallica, Motley Crue, Megadeth, Death Leopard, them kind of bands. But Quo's kind of, they're a bit like a, a, a weird sort of passage of time to me, because it's the career that you'd had you've written many books you've directed a few documentaries and things um how did the idea of of hello quo come about Someone had to go out and raise, say, in the case of Quo, 
And you know, sometimes obviously this happens to everybody. You and your mates, things happen, and you get completely crosswired to why you're somewhere and doing something. I arrived in my hotel. I don't think I've been in my hotel room ten minutes, and the phone rang, and it was one of my oldest pals who still lives in the vicinity of Blackburn. And he went, "Oh, nice one. I've just been speaking to your brother. You're up then." He said, "So what time shall we meet tonight?" I said, "Meet tonight? What for?" He said, "Oh, I thought that's where you come up." And I said, "I said, John, I really think we're on the two different pages here. Where do you think we're going this evening?" And he said, "Well, status quo playing King George's." And I thought maybe you'd come up early to see Mum in order to get the gig in tonight. I said, well, I haven't, but if you want to go, I can soon arrange it. I said, that dad is going to be too difficult. He said, well, it'd be, you know, good. I've seen you for a while. It'd be good to go and see a, you know, see a band play. So I rang Chris, Quo's PR in London, and I said, Chris, I'm in Blackburn. Any chance of getting us a guest list plus one this evening? And there was a sort of gap of silence followed by incredibly loud laughter, and Chris said, to get whoever you want to take out, you you are the guest list. We don't know nobody in Blackburn. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I went down there, met up with John. No, still zero intention at this point of actually doing a face call film. Went upstairs. We had two seats on the front row of the balcony. House lights go down. They come on to Caroline, awash with white light. The building is going mental as people leaping up and down, downstairs, everyone singing along. And I feel this hand touch my knee. And it's John, and like I say, one of my oldest mates. And he looked at me, he goes, you could do a lot worse than this lot, you know. And I went, you know what, that's a thought. Just hang, oh, hang that thought one minute. And I walked right outside the venue, turned on my mobile phone, and I rang Alexa, my business partner and producer. And then about two minutes later, I rang my business manager and I said, how do you feel about status quo? And he went, that could be good. It's got, you know, all the parts you need for a rock and roll documentary. It's got, you know, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, the travel, the number one hits, the gold discs. It, it works. That could work. So I think I wouldn't be telling anybody any fibs if I said probably within two days of getting back to London, we were sat in a private gentleman's club with our business manager, our lawyer, their lawyer and Simon Porter talking about what the future held. And it happened that quickly. It literally happened in, a, in the space of about four or five days. And I, I often wonder if I hadn't gone to see Mum at that exact time and if I hadn't gone up to Blackburn at all, let's say, that year, what would the next film be? Because I've got a very strong feeling it wouldn't be status quo. But fate's a funny thing, isn't it? It it really is. And obviously between those meetings and filming, how, how much time was there in between? I think to pull the actual project together, to raise the finance and also to get all the interviewees in place and start looking through the archive and stuff, I think probably would have been a period of about three months. The first interview I always remember was done in the Covent Garden Hotel just off Seven Dials in London, and it was John Coglan. I said to John, when John, I knew John, I'd met John before, and I said to John, no pressure, you're first. And he started laughing, he said, oh great. And from there, including London, surrounding areas, Spain for obvious reasons, other parts of Europe and America, we were filming for five months. And while we were filming, the research guys were digging into just about every TV company in the world going, status quo, what have you got? And more importantly, what have you got that we haven't seen before in previous things? I was also aware there'd been one other documentary 
got a failing factorist that not all the frantic four are in it. So I'd said originally to Simon, we're interested and we want to do it, but we're only going to go out, raise the money and do the gig if Francis, Rick, Alan and John are all present and correct. Anything else is down to you. Like whoever, whoever we get otherwise, interviewee-wise, and the current lineup, that's all down to discussions between us and you. But we're not pressing the go button unless I know the Frantic Four are involved in this film. And that's how it started. And I know that um, when you were thinking about it, I've, I've heard you in previous interviews say that um, although the film encompasses the whole career of Quo, or Quo up to that point, certainly, um, it really is about those four guys. Yeah, I mean, you were credited, weren't you? We're kind of putting those four guys back together. Well, I hope it says a little 
little bit more than that, but I do understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. It sort of happened. We were in a meeting one day in between a few interviews, and we'd already done quite a long burst with Francis and with Rick at that point. We'd already been out and done a few days on tour with the band, so we could do some backstage stuff and also get a feel of how it all worked with the fan base, sort of DVD extra stuff. We'd interviewed John, I think at that point we'd also interviewed Rhino and Andy and Matt and Jeff. Alan we had yet to interview, he was flying in specially. That was good. That was one of the last interviews, Alan, if not the last interview. We spoke on the phone, Alan and I, a couple of times. Alexa and I were sat together one afternoon and Alexa turned around and said, so I presume the film is now going to end with the band jamming together. I said, well, that's a, that's a bloody big ask. I said, I don't know whether they'll, you know, whether they'll go for that. I don't, you know, they might, they might not. I've got a clue. Over the course of about a week, 10 days, I started thinking about it and discussing it with the team as, as, as we all did. Literally one day, it got brought up while we were in a meeting with various business managers, lawyers, and indeed Simon Porter. And we said, wouldn't it be a great ending for the film if the Frantic Four were played together? You know, it's only one song. Be a great ending for the fan base and everything. It'd be good, you know, it'd be good to do that. And it started gaining ground. That's when we, I often jokingly say that was the time of our lives when we should have joined the FBI or the CIA because everybody wanted it to be the biggest secret on God's green earth. And the, the national newspapers, Red Tops being what they are, they were all sort of, I mean, I had a friend at the time who worked the News of the World who actually rang me one day and said, by the way, just as just just so you're aware, you don't suit white shoes with black jeans. And I said, how the hell do you know I was wearing white shoes? With he said, you do realise, Alan, everybody's got photographers in bushes following you everywhere because you're the guy who's going to, one day this week, the next week, going to put the fancy four back together. <laughs> and he said he had a desk full of photographs. He said, well, I've got a desk full of photographs of me, mate, walking around London. <laughs> And we literally were being, we knew we were being followed. We were, I mean, that, that, that reunion was scheduled about two or three times with different dates, times, places, and potential locations. And occasionally you'd get phone calls at like half 10 at night on a very rainy Wednesday saying, by the way, tomorrow morning's off the Daily Mirror, know where we're going to be. So it was a bit like, I guess, I guess it's the closest I'm ever going to get to being a, on a Smiley's gang, I suppose, you know, the old dirt Tinker Taylor soldier spy mob. But it was, it was a bit like that for about two or three weeks. But uh, as luck would have it, we, we pulled it off up there at um, Shepparton. Nobody knew at all. And then the biggest difficulty, as you'd imagine, was wandering round London among your mates and just people you meet in pubs and clubs casually, knowing full well for about five or six months that not only had you just put the Frantic Four back together, but you filmed it and the world would know soon that you were now under a signed legal embargo not to talk about it to anybody. That famous photograph of Rick, Alan, me, John and Francis all hugging each other on the soundstage at Shepparton had been taken and I wasn't even allowed to tell my mother that it existed for five months and three weeks because I had signed an embargo to say I wouldn't speak to anybody about it. That really did end the film on a, on a high note, didn't it? I mean, you can hear it. I always say to people, if you want to know just how big a deal it was, next time you watch the movie and you see that clip of film of them all, you know, obviously we set that up all hugging each other in the cars, then walking inside. I think we'd all been there two hours when we shot that. We'd had about four bruises at that stage. But when it's going on, that piece of film, there's a few people's voices talking. 
how big a deal it was. Next time you watch the movie, just listen to Paul Weller's voice. Because when I say to Paul Weller, and, and yeah, the film's going to end with a frantic four coming back. You're kidding me, that'll never happen. You will hear Paul, it's like ultimate shock in his voice, like, you're not going to pull that off. Everyone knows they, you know, they never happen. They'll never play it together again. And so it, it, was a, it was a great place to, and I mean, that itself, I mean, we did, we did a, this film in that day. We had, I think we had 12 cameras in, we had a dolly track, we had a crane in Shepparton. We just shot everything. I mean, the jam session went on for about 45 minutes. God bless the four of them, because I can say this categorically, it was completely unreal. They hadn't even picked up a plectrum before that morning. It is an amazing piece of film. And then history was made. And obviously that, that film is now around eight years old. Um, what are your thoughts on the film as a whole now, now that you've had time to kind of look back at it? It's a funny thing. When you make a movie, I spoke to lots of other directors and producers, I know it's not just me, you become so attached to it that by the time you hit the, the, like the red copy premiere, you sat there in the cinema Everybody else is, you can hear all the, and, or laughter, or people sighing, or what, you can hear all that, but it's, it is completely washing over you. You may as well be watching two hours of mushy peas flying at you, you know, there's no, there's nothing to watch. You've seen it that often, you know it backwards in French, and I don't know French, you know. It becomes a little bit weird at that point. So what I tend to do is when I get the DVDs and the Blu-rays sent over, I put them on the shelf, and I completely ignore it for about 12 months. And then after 12 months, I take it off the shelf, take the plastic wrapper off, and as I often say to my mates, I watch it like, well, like you do. Yeah. I try and watch it with a completely clear head. You know, this is a film, let's sit down and watch it. I'm happy with it. I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know if it presented a false front to some degree, um, you know, because obviously, yes, we know what happens next. They go on, they do two very successful reunion tours. But now, Francis and Alan are not talking again. Rick's no longer with us. So the timing of it was absolutely nail on the head perfect. But yeah, I'm, I'm very, very proud of it. I suppose is the real answer to that. I've got, we've made 13 movies, and I think of those 13 movies, I love all of them for obvious reasons, you know, because I put a lot of time and effort into all of them. But there's about five of those 13 movies that I really do well part chiseled on my headstones, to, you know, title-wise, <laughs> because I'm so proud of them, you know. And I really think with L.O. Quo, we did something a wee bit special, not knowing at the time, of course, because that's that wonderful hindsight thing, that nobody else was ever going to get to repeat it. That's going to be, that forever will be the status quo story, because you can't do another version. There's too much gone on. And of course, poor old Rick's no longer with us. Well, that's right. And um, it, it is, I think, for most fans, the definitive documentary. So thank you from all the fans for that. Cheers. As I say, we're humbled by it. We really are, because we, we were in, it was right place, right time. And in, in that respect, it worked perfectly. Yeah. I wanted to ask, what are you working on now? 
did start work on a brand new project. And as you know, we did the big Beatles Sgt. Pepper film that came out 2017 for the 50th anniversary. That was a labour of love because pretty much all the team of Beatles fans, but I'm Beatles gas, but, you know, probably my favourite band on the planet. That was huge. I mean, it went all over the world. It went to different territories at different times. So although it came out in England in May 2017, I was still promoting it in places like Australia and Japan in May, June 2018. <laughs> so it was a big job leading up to it, and a big job past it, if you understand. With typical aplomb of the way we seem to do things, we started discussing a brand new idea that all the team were into, yeah, this will be cool. We went out and started looking for finance, got those boxes those boxes ticked, and we actually started work on the film literally about two, maybe three weeks before Boris turned around and said, we're now on lockdown. So everything's in place to start work when we return to whatever we're going to call normal. Um, uh, the original intention had been to bring the film out just pre-Christmas this year. I think talking to the Americans and the English on Zoom calls in the last week or so, that's probably going to be more likely to be August, September, possibly even October next year now. But we can't say what because obviously like all these things, now it's been rubber stamped and it's going to happen. It's got a bit of a sort of uh, gagging order on it, you know. Yeah. They know, but they've invested their money in something huge and they want it to stay huge, you know. It's quite funny, actually. We were talking earlier about the uh, the, the famous vulture of the, what my drinking buddies refer to as the Frantic Five from Shepparton. And the first time that picture ever appeared, you may know, was the double-page spread in Classic Rock in the news section. Uh, my cousin, who's also one of my best friends, Colin, he subscribes to Classic Rock. And he must have got his issue with the magazine that particular morning. The man is Quo Daft, they're his favourite band. He's a, he's a real Quoet. The phone rings, my mobile rings. I thought, oh, it's Colin. So I pick up and I go, all right, I'll kid. And he just goes, the fucking hell are you doing in Classic Rock with Quo? <laughs> I said, well, I couldn't tell you anything. I said, it's been going on for, for a while. And he knew we were doing a, a, a job with them, but he didn't know we were doing a job that would result in the reunion of his favourite band. You know, he hadn't got a clue about that because, as I say, I wasn't, wasn't allowed to tell anyone. So it is a bit like that. You spend you spend a little bit of time coming up with an idea, a few months raising capital, a few more months shooting and cutting it, during which, most of the time, you can't tell a living soul, even your own personal family, what you're up to. <laughs> because if you do, the investors are going to turn around and go, you've kind of blown our cover. We can't, can we make any money out of this if people don't know what's happening? So let me put it this way. It's something I'm really keen on. It's something I want to do, and I'm uh, I'm very excited about it. I hope it's going to... There's a lot of work to do still. We're still going to do filming in various parts of the world. We're still going to head off along, get it ahead of us. But I think, certainly pre-lockdown, I was like, right, this is going to be Yeah, well, I hope that um, you get to get back to it as you know sooner rather than later. Mm, we do. <laughs> We're bored sick at the moment, like everybody else. You know, it's, uh... I can imagine. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the Quocast today and talking about Hello Quo. Because you said you went to the fan club convention. There's loads of people wanting to talk to you, and it's it's quite uh, quite an experience, especially as I would imagine as a filmmaker as such as yourself, you kind of move on to the next project, don't you? out doing press and PR on something 
know, it's like when we did those three films, as I mentioned at the start of this, back-to-back, The Clash, Sid Vicious and Monty Python, you're kind of living two lives because you're out doing PR and press on Sid Vicious, and yet all during the day you're working on Monty Python that you can't tell nobody. So you've kind of got to work two hats. You know, you're out, you're out promoting The Clash, but all during the day you're working on Sid Vicious. And it's a weird, it's, it is a weird old thing, you know. You, you're constantly... It's like bands with brand new albums, I suppose, you know, that when we go out as fans and buy albums that I know from a time in the record industry, those albums could have been recorded, done, finished and everything anywhere between six and 12 months before we see them. So by the time you come to actually promoting it, it's a completely different story. You're going out promoting something that in your life is it's a train that's long past the station, it's long gone. Yeah. But I guess it's just the way that it's the way the business works, you know. Alan G. Parker, director of Hello Quo, talking to me, Jamie Dyer, for the Quocast. And I'd like to say thank you very much, Alan, for coming on and discussing your experiences with making that amazing movie. And if you've been listening to this episode and you haven't seen Hello Quo yet, there are many ways that you can get hold of it. You can um, buy it digitally on several streaming services. You can also stream it if you're a Prime member, uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, You can buy it on DVD and Blu-ray as well. And I do recommend either one of those. Um, If you haven't seen it, it's on the BBC sometimes. An edited down version is on BBC4 and sometimes BBC2. So uh, yeah, do look out for that if you haven't seen it. So before we go, let me round off the answer to last week's little puzzler that I gave you. The three words that links to a song somehow. Okay, those three words were duplicate, airborne, permission. Duplicate, airborne, permission. Did you get it right? Well, I can tell you that if you said, let me fly, you got it right. Congratulations. How do those words connect to let me fly? Well, let me go through them in the reverse order. So permission uh, obviously, let me fly. Let me fly, let me fly like a bird in the sky. It's like like he's asking. So it's like he's asking permission. Uh, then airborne, well, flying, being airborne, and obviously duplicate. This was a little bit more cryptic. The music video is shot in the same place as the music video for Someone Show Me Home. It's the same set. So it's a duplicate. Um, that, those were the free clues, and that's the answer to that. So if you said, let me fly, then um, well done to you. I'll give you another puzzler next week. So for now, I'll say bye-bye for now. See you on the next episode. Thank you.